Luke Minute is Downtown, the podcast. Episode number 117. Rich Kimball, Carrie Haskell with you. From the Zone Radio Studios in Bangor, Maine, this is where we do our daily show, Downtown, weekday afternoons from 4 to 6 Eastern Time. On the Zone Radio stations of Maine, worldwide streaming audio at downtownwithrichkimball.com. We are brought to you every week by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. Well, we love talking to authors on our show and on the podcast. And uh, this week, we've got two of them, uh, both of whom have been on the program before, and both who've got brand new and wonderful books. A little bit later on, Larry Ty talks with us about Joe McCarthy. His new book is called Demagogue, and he certainly draws some connections between what Joe McCarthy did 70 years ago and what's happening in present-day America. So that's coming up in the second half of the program. But up first, our conversation with author Charles Learson. Last time he was on with us, he talked about his great book, Ty Cobb, A Terrible Beauty. He's also written about, uh, among others, Satchel Paige, uh, the Indy 500 as well. But the new one is a, a different approach outside the world of sports. It's called... Butch Cassidy, The True Story of an American Outlaw, a tremendously well-researched and fascinating book. We talked about it all with author Charlie Learson. Love this book so much, and I'm curious that you've written an awful lot about sports. What led you from sports into the outlaw world? Uh, well, it was a simple thing of being stuck for a, a new subject, and my uh, my editor at uh, Simon & Schuster uh, suggested Butch Cassidy. And uh, I didn't know anything about the, the Wild West or, or Western Outlaws, uh, other than, you know, watch a lot of TV and movies uh, and, and saw the original uh, Witch Cassidy and Sundance Kid movie, which is now 51 years old, hard to believe. Ouch. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And uh, so uh, it, it, I, I was starting from kind of like a standing start. And, uh, but, but I do love, uh, it did play into one of my passions, which is this period of history between 1880, roughly, and the, and the roughly also the First World War. Uh, there's so much that happened in America then. I think that's the most uh, uh, transformative and important uh, period in American history. You know, as big as the digital age is, and as it certainly as important as you know the advent of the cell phone and and the computer and all that. Uh, I think that period was was more interesting and more important because you had the automobile, you had the uh, uh, movies, you had electricity in cities, and you had uh, every, everything that went with it. You had an explosion of literacy uh, where most people could read by the end of that period in America, the vast majority. And at the beginning of that time span, the very a minority of Americans could read. So, you know, it was a move from the cities to the countries, uh, from the farms, I mean, to the cities. And, and, what happened with Butch Cassidy was he was at the very tail end of that Wild West uh, era, and it was getting harder and harder to be an American outlaw. And that, that, that had a great appeal to me, that idea. Well, in Ty Cobb, A Terrible Beauty, you corrected a lot of misperceptions and outright, outright lies about Cobb. And, of course, when you talk about outlaws and figures from the Old West, they're always shrouded in in mystery and confusion and, and fiction, uh, the old line from the man who shot Liberty Valance, you know, report the report the legend. And uh, certainly there were a lot about Butch Cassidy, starting with uh, his very persona. He was not Butch Cassidy. He was not George Cassidy, but Bob Parker, a, a Mormon whose family had made their way west from New York City. 
That's that, that well, uh, New York City via <laughs> had a brief stopover in New York on their way from uh, England, where they they were recruited uh, uh, by the Mormons who had a big missionary movement out in uh, in England and and brought home, brought in uh, thousands of people, among them Butch Cassidy's future parents, and they made their way out to Utah, which was uh, Brigham Young was stocking Utah with. Uh, believers in the Mormon faith uh, to start this separate colony that he was going to start out there that was going to be even apart from America, something like within America, but also outside of America. And uh, uh, Butch was born there in 1866. He was born, as you say, Robert Leroy Parker, to, on, to very poor uh, farmers, ranchers. And, and that was the very beginning. Southern Utah is a very tough place just to survive and live between the weather conditions and the, and the and the relations between the uh, the Indians and the and those settlers. Uh, it was it was a really hard place to live, and I think he developed this persona of of Butch Cassidy. It was it was almost like a form of entertainment. He was almost like an entertainer uh, more than an outlaw. And if that sounds like I'm making light of uh, law breaking. I, I'm not, not as much as you think, perhaps, because Butch played by these rules where he was not a brutal criminal. He didn't he didn't kill anyone or, or harm them. And he didn't even harm uh, average people financially. He was after the money that was in the in the safe. He, when he when he'd rob a train or a bank, people would get scared. They'd hold out their watches and their wallets and they'd say, take this, please. And he'd say, no, we don't want your money. We want what's in the in the corporate safe so that's what he was he was a bedeviler of the corporations that were making life even harder out west and as you explained uh, he, he didn't kill but he used the appearance of ruthlessness but also a professionalism in the way uh, he and eventually the members of the wild bunch would dress exactly that I, that was one of the more interesting things i found actually that they would go out of their way to dress well him and his him and his gang the wild bunch and be always be bathed and well barbered and groomed and 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 to to convey an air of professionalism that they weren't they weren't fools and they weren't bumbling idiots or desperate men they were they were calm professionals and so uh that, that way they minimized violence uh when they got to the bank window when they got to the the, the train safe and uh or whatever they were robbing uh because they they were they were professionals and they and they had this professional air and they did have an air of cold-heartedness that went with it that was meant to intimidate but the intimidation was all a substitute uh for the violence and there's there's cases on the record of the newspapers covered at the more believable newspapers of of, 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 of you know pe people who were robbed and butch admonished his his gang members don't don't hurt that guy you know don't watch out you're gonna you're gonna kill him and uh and always pulled their punches always pulled up short because as i say he was he was as much of an entertainer as he was an outlaw. We're talking with Charles Learson here on downtown. When when you wonder why someone would choose the outlaw life, well, a couple of reasons. As you point out, some past books and films about this time period and the West really romanticized it. It was not like Little House on the Prairie by any stretch. It was a hard life. And, and I love uh, a phrase that you use, that cowboy crap gets old fast. That's right. I mean, the West is, of course, beautiful. And uh, we go out there just to absorb the scenery nowadays. Uh, but it was also an extremely boring place to live, especially and to work. If you were a young man, a cowboy, and you were part of this generation, as which was the sort of the post-Civil War 
generation. He was born in 1866, and uh, it, it was it was a a hard life and a boring life and the boringness of it, the repetitiveness of it. And the, uh, you know, just to go from here to there, you know, would take, would take, was the work of weeks. You know, we, we think of riding between two cities, but that, that took a week, a week of sleeping outside. And, and, uh, and, and if you were on the back of the ranch, it was, it was even more boring. You were shoveling horse manure and, and, uh, and doing God knows what. So he, it was an escape uh, a lot of, for a lot of outlaws, it was for Butch. It was it was a stylish escape, more of a stylish escape than than for some other uh, other guys. Most of what we think we know about Butch comes, of course, from the movie. And as, as you point out, William Goldman did minimal research because, well, bad boys trump good history. He wanted the story. Right. He had great instincts for what made a, a Hollywood movie. And uh, I went into read William Goldman's papers, and he went up. He, he, he's the guy that wrote Sting and a bunch of other very famous uh, uh, and entertaining movies. I, I went to uh, look through his papers there at Columbia University, and there's a folder there for Butch Cassidy and a Sundance Kid, and one of the very few things in it is a comic book from the 1950s of uh, Butch Cassidy, and there's a couple of scraps of paper, but that's it. He said he didn't want to be con- confined by the facts. And that's, that's <laughs> typical Hollywood in a way, you know, like they'd rather have that. They had a good name, Butch Cassidy, Sundance Kid, two good names, and they'll, they'll make up a story to go, to go with it. And so, so the, you know, most of the movie starts out with this, uh, people may remember if they've seen it recently, it starts out with this thing, you know, most of what follows is true. It's, but it's, it's actually not, that's not true at all. But the one thing they got right was Butch's personality. Uh, and, and William Goldman, by accident, and Paul Newman, who did even less research than William Goldman and played him, played Butch in the movie, they captured Butch's personality. And style was a big part of it, too, including his first adult bank robbery and his, his means of escape and the way he got onto his horse. Yeah, he would. Well, you know, one of the other things he he was responsible for was perfecting this system of putting a horse relay out there uh, to and it would take weeks of work and uh, to to round up the horses to train them. Uh, So he'd have horses staked and then he'd have to have guys watching the horses, uh, him and the gang. Uh, And they would uh, ride a few miles and switch to fresh horses and so on and so forth. And because in those days. Uh, uh, you know, once you rob the bank or, or, or rob the railroad, it was a, it was a horse race between you and the posse. So by changing horses every few miles, it, w- it was no competition, and you just rode away from them. But I think what maybe what you're referring to was the time when they, when they robbed the bank, and and Bush decided he just for being purposes of being stylish and uh, show busy, he was going to leap on his horse from the rear, not get up in the stirrup. And uh, and and uh, and it took weeks of, of practice, and he had to do it under the the conditions for so the horse was right in the middle of town. He couldn't do it out in the you know uh, in some remote area. He had to ha- have the horse practice where it was a bustling, busy street, and he would then leap on into the saddle from the rear. When the time came, he pulled it off, but he 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 lost his hat uh, in the process. His hat flew off, and for a cowboy, that was a a major faux pas because they those guys never took their hats off. There are so many wonderful characters in the book. One of my favorites is is a historian, I, and I guess I, I should put that in quotation marks. Can you talk a little bit about Kerry Ross Boren? Yeah, he's an interesting guy that I I met. You know, one of the uh, 
uh, one, one of the things that happened when the movie came out in, in 1969 was that it, 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 it spurred, and no pun intended, this, this tremendous amount of interest in sort of hobbyists research doing people would for kind of a hobby they'd investigate Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid because very little was known about them they were they had kind of fallen into obscurity when the by the by the time the movie came out they weren't like Jesse James or Billy the Kid uh, people weren't talking about them and then the movie came out and people said well who are these guys so a lot of people got involved in in uh, digging up stuff about them and some people to <laughs> to stay ahead of the pack well Kerry Ross Bourne is a guy who originally was on the kind of the A-list of researchers. He, he, he was a consultant on the movie. He helped Robert Redford, who played the Sundance Kid. He, he helped him uh, a few years later when Redford wrote a book called The Outlaw Trail and rode the trail and all. But then uh, Mr. Bourne got in. He kind of drove off into the loco weed, and he started making up stories about how uh, Butch Cassidy and you know they they met Lawrence of Arabia, uh, you know they met Pancho Villa, they you know uh, and uh, and they lived until the 1940s or 50s and died in Nevada. He 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 has a he's actually the the leader of a school of like of very eccentric and uh, dubious researchers that, that that's that's still out there. Uh, I, there were so many patterns to his life. Uh, and one is this, that uh, uh, he would peak, they would do well after a, a bank job, then he would go broke, and then Butch would consider uh, going back to the straight life. And there seemed to always be that push and pull with him, with, with people in the straight life often pulling for him to do well and make the right choice. Yeah, he he his life was a series of as you say like you know his pendulum swings. Uh he 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 didn't commit dozens and dozens of robberies because a lot of the time he was in the mood and trying to go straight. He he when he when he was when he was uh when he was going straight and and trying to make a living as a rancher, he'd get discouraged and bored and 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 yearn for the exciting outlaw life. And then he'd become an outlaw and he'd get tired of being chased and tired of a life where you couldn't sit with your back to the door and you had to worry every minute uh, about about being caught and those guys really worried because prisons were were really tough places to be in those days out in the west and uh and a lot of them you know killed themselves rather than get caught and and go to prison so which would swing back and forth between uh between yearning for the the grass was always greener and in fact when they finally made their big move to south america uh, in 1901, that was it was because they were sick of being pursued, and they and they and they wanted to start a, the ranching life uh, again, and and started up again. So they went to Argentina. It's a chapter that's left out of the movie. Um, in the movie, they they just go to Bolivia, but in 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 reality, they went to Argentina, Chile, Bolivia, and they bounced around down there, and were, were and were legit ranchers in Argentina for five years. I think one of my favorite stories in the book is the Outlaws Thanksgiving in 1896. <laughs> yeah, that's the first recorded instance we have of uh, Butch Cassidy and the and the Sundance Kid together. One reason the book is is mostly about Butch Cassidy and it's called Butch Cassidy is because he was sort of the the dominant uh, figure and 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 he didn't connect with the uh, Sundance until pretty late in their careers. Uh, but when the first time we have on record of them being in the same place, it was on this place called Browns Park, which was 
kind of where near where Colorado meets uh, Wyoming, or it, it, it's 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 in a really an obscure place. And I, I went there, but it was known as a as a place where outlaws could go, and the and the and the and the regular folks, the regular ranchers, would turn you know, uh, turn their cheek and not, and not, uh, uh, turn them in. And, and so the, all the outlaws were there and they had this, uh, big Thanksgiving feast full of outlaws and full of the prominent people from Brown's park, uh, in 1896. And at one point the doors flew open and there was Butch and Sundance. They came out, they were the waiters and they had gravy boats and, you know, Thanksgiving then I found out was pretty much what it is now, the mm. same dishes and, and the same, uh, rituals and whatnot, and there they had the turkey and the cranberry sauce and the gravy and the mashed potatoes and the stuffing, and they were doing their best to to act like you know French waiters in a in a fancy restaurant. And everyone was everyone in this remote area was dressed up, with the men with the stiff high collars and the women with the long frilly dresses, because everyone had clothes like set of clothes like that, because they would get their picture taken every once in a while when a every few years when a traveling photographer went around. So it was de rigueur to have a a fancy outfit so they 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 put they put those on and they had this party and you know that's one of the things that william goldman missed by not doing some uh more research because that's not in the movie and it sounds like it would have been a great scene in the movie with butch and sundance coming out and and, and serving thanksgiving dinner and speaking of the movie the elsie lay is a character that uh, it seems from the book is closer to butch than Harry Lanabas, Sundance ever was uh, a great story about uh, the grandchildren of Elsie Lay and others going to see the movie and, and the reaction when somebody said to him, "Yeah, that's uh, Sundance. Is it seems more like your grandfather than it does Harry?" <laughs> that's right. And uh, and and it was, the guy's name was Harvey Murdoch. I spoke to him. He was he was Elsie uh, Lay's uh, grandson, and he said, "Well." Uh, yeah, I know what you mean, but but who would go to see a movie called Butch Cassidy and Elsie Way? You know, so uh, <laughs> he he had a sense of uh, of uh, you know what what looked better on a marquee. It's it's funny because it, that story reminds me also of how close the Wild West was. It's not all that long ago because when the movie came out, uh, not just Elsie Way's uh, that's Butch's real best friend, his grandson was still alive, and he'd met his grandfather a few times. Uh, so he, I talked to a guy who who talked to a guy who was Butch's, uh, I, I met a guy who, who talked to someone who was Butch's best friend, but also Butch's sister was still alive. One of his sisters, uh, when the movie came out, I say in the book alive and kicking because she didn't get any money from Hollywood. Uh, <laughs> and she, she, she was very angry about that. And she went and wrote her own book, uh, a long time ago, but Butch had 13 siblings. And so some of them were born quite a long time after him, and uh, and we're still alive in 1969. And you went to all these places. You traveled to South America. You went to the uh, the cabin where he grew up, uh, which was also the scene of a, a huge massacre not long before his birth. Yeah, it was a few uh, a few miles from there. Yeah, the 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 story of the Mormon settlement and their and their and the and the is. Uh, uh, you know, I don't want to get into criticizing religions, but it's 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 a it's it's a rough thing because Mormons in the you know we think of Mormons as uh, you know uh, Donnie and Marie and uh, and and Mitt Romney and you know very calm, sophisticated, civilized people, but in the in the 19th century they were kind of dedicated to the overthrow of the United States government, and they were waiting for the Civil War to end. Uh, the Mormons in um, in Utah, and and then uh, and then you know, uh, 
then attack the United States government and, and, and take over and turn it into a theocracy. That was their plan. So it was kind of a wild uh, scene in a way out there and very tense. The relationship between the, the government and the Mormons was 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 a very tense and uh, was one long standoff there uh, at the time when Butch was around. Well, if you think you know the story of Butch Cassidy, I'm pretty sure you don't, but you will if you read Butch Cassidy, the true story of an American outlaw, including an ending very different from the movie, far less ambiguous. And uh, but you got to read the book to find out about that. Uh, Charles loved it, a tremendous read. It's great to talk with you once again. We wish you much success with the book. Thank you, Rich. I really appreciate it. It's been fun. That's Charles Learson talking with us about his new book on Butch Cassidy, the true story of an American outlaw. I find that such a fascinating time in American history, too. Late 1800s into the early 1900s, it's you know, it's a time period that didn't get covered for most of us in our high school history classes. Right. It's it's between the Civil War and World War One. It sort of just got skipped over uh, in a lot of American history classes. But yeah, it, it's a interesting look at what did those people, a lot of them affected by the events of the Civil War, headed out west to sort of start new lives. And, and you know, for a generation or two, that, that's what they did out there. And, and it, it demystifies that, that life, too. And we, mm. we know, we've known for years that the Wild West was not what we saw in Gunsmoke or Bonanza mm. or any of the movies of the time period, much less dramatic and much more difficult, um, especially way out west where uh, Butch Cassidy's family was, where you know, water was hard to come by mm. initially. Tough times indeed, but a, a fascinating new book there by Charles Learson on Butch Cassidy. When we come back, we talk about Senator Joe McCarthy, the Red Scare of the 1950s, and parallels to the present day with author Larry Ty after this word from Cross Insurance. Since its founding in 1954, Cross Insurance has grown from a small family-owned agency that started in Bangor, Maine, into one of the largest super regional insurance agencies in New England. With the network of offices throughout New England, Cross Insurance works with top carriers to provide maximum value to you, your family, and your business. We are proud to be the official insurance broker of the New England Patriots and would welcome the chance to provide security for your team. For more information, visit CrossInsurance.com. Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. Raindrops keep falling on my head. And just like the guy whose feet are too big for his bed, nothing seems to fit. That's the scene that uh, Charles Learson said <laughs> we'd have been better off without in Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kids, you know, the bike riding scene. I get that, but but we'd have lost out on that great song by friend of our show, B.J. Thomas. Yeah, I think we have to keep it. <laughs> Who had laryngitis when he recorded it. Hmm. And they said to him, uh, yeah, we think your voice sounds like what Paul Newman's voice would sound like if he could sing. <laughs> Charles Learson's book on Butch Cassidy opened up the show second half. It's another wonderful new book uh, from our friend Larry Ty, who last time out wrote about Bobby Kennedy. And this time around sets his sights on McCarthyism, the Red Scare of the 1950s. The book is called Demagogue, the Life and Long Shadow of Senator Joe McCarthy and some clear parallels and connections to the present day in this book. Here's our conversation with Larry Ty. Back on. Well, it really is a, a wonderful book, uh, so thoroughly researched. You had access to uh, 
files and information that nobody's ever been utilized, uh, able to utilize before. And talking about Joe McCarthy, what drew you to his story? Two things did. One was my last book was a biography of Bobby Kennedy. And when I interviewed twice Bobby's widow, Ethel Kennedy, she said something that I couldn't get out of my head. She said that Joe McCarthy might be a monster to much of America, but to Bobby and Ethel, he was just plain good fun. And if there are any two words that seemed jarring when you think of Joe McCarthy, it would be good fun. And the other is that I had signed up a week before the 2016 election to write a biography of Barack Obama. But the day after the election, two things were clear. One is that the Obama story would not become known until the end of Donald Trump's tenure. And the other is that the story of Joe McCarthy, which looked like a story of ancient history, was in fact the story of today. Absolutely. And one of the things I found very interesting early in the book is that when you say that McCarthy didn't even believe some of the things he was saying early on, but willed himself into becoming a true believer. He did indeed. When he showed up for the speech that ended up launching his crusade and the whole McCarthyism movement, uh, that was a speech in February of 1950 in Wheeling, West Virginia. He was enough of a cynic and enough of a guy desperate for an issue to grab onto that he actually had in his briefcase that night two speeches. One was a snoozer (laughs) on national housing policy, and if he had given that speech, you and I wouldn't be talking about him 70 years later. And the other was a barn burner on alleged spies at the U.S. State Department. And that was a speech that he was looking at for the first time that night, really knew nothing about the issue, did not have the evidence that he said of spies in the State Department, but it put him on the page one of every newspaper in America, and he never looked back. No, and, and as you point out in the book, even the names that he was using uh, were, were old names, uh, some of them that uh, were even no longer working in the government. But it was never about the specifics with him. It was distracting people uh, with the big noise, and then the number would always change, but it didn't matter. People weren't asking, are there communists in the government? They were asking, how many did he say today? Exactly. So that is just what he did And it's actually said, and it was said in humor, but it could have been as true given the spurious nature of all of his evidence. It was said that he stopped on his way to that speech in Wheeling for one of his trademark steaks or hamburgers, that he poured Heinz 57 sauce on it. And that was why one of the numbers he used in the subsequent week repeatedly was 57. Fascinating, too, to learn about his military career. He picked up that nickname, Tail Gunner Joe, and people were dismissive of his military career. But you were able to get a lot of information, not just his military records, uh, but from from people who served with him. And you found out that when he was a Marine, he sought out action that he wasn't required to do for his job, but also managed to exaggerate his exploits and then even broke the law while campaigning for the Senate on active duty. Yes. So that episode of his military service in the South Pacific during World War II shows two things. One, it shows that he was actually telling the truth, as you say, about volunteering for service that he didn't have to do. He was a safe land-based intelligence officer, 
He volunteered to fly various missions. He sometimes flew as a tail gunner. He came under enemy fire. We know that from his real-time handwritten diaries and from testimony of fellow soldiers there. And that shows that if you lie often enough when you're telling the truth, you're often not going to be believed. But he went on, as you say, when he was in the military to do things that were a clear violation of military regulations. And that was everything from sort of um, the mindless and uh, harmless things like buying whiskey for his fellow Marines and doing peddling all kinds of contraband and making profit on that to campaigning for his first campaign for U.S. Senate from his South Pacific island with enormous banners stretched across his truck and his tent saying McCarthy for Senate, even though that was a clear violation of military rules prohibiting anybody from using their service time to campaign. So it was Joe McCarthy not being able to resist, and yet there was that other side, the side that Ethel Kennedy talked about, that saw him as a legitimate war hero. In that first campaign for the Senate, he really created, in many ways, the template for the next 70 years of the Republican Party and conservatism by painting a Wisconsin icon somehow as an Eastern elite. Exactly. The icon was a guy who was as famous in Wisconsin, his family was, as the Kennedys were in Massachusetts. And it was a guy named Bob LaFollette, Jr. And this was a guy who had given up much of his life in serving his state. His father had done the same thing. His brother would become governor. And McCarthy managed to attack him as old and tired and a uh, guy who was living not in Wisconsin, but in a mansion in Virginia. And some of that was had an element of truth. Much of it was outright lie. But Joe McCarthy was willing to campaign on the high road, on the low road, on whatever road would take him to where he wanted to be, which was to gain power and hold on to it. We're talking with Larry Ty here on Downtown. Uh, He also, along with targeting suspected communists, targeted gays, homosexuals, and lesbians, and he said it was because they were particularly vulnerable to blackmail and foreign influence. But the irony, as you point out, is that uh, Joe had a number of things that made him vulnerable. Right. He was a gambler and had um, habits of drinking that would end up killing him. If anybody was vulnerable to the kinds of targeting that he was talking about in terms of Soviet agents realizing that this was a politician who they could blackmail, it was Joe McCarthy. And I think it was a fig leaf in terms of why he was going after gays. He was going after gays because they were vulnerable. He was going after, in many cases, Jews because they were vulnerable, and he was going after Reds because they made good copy whether or not they were really Red, whether or not they were really working for the Soviet Union. And again, a joke that was told about him, I think, captures a whole lot of truth. It was said if he had been dropped into the middle of Red Square in Moscow on May Day, he wouldn't have been able to pick out a real communist. (laughs) Uh, He did get some help along the way from the FBI and and more than likely from J. Edgar Hoover himself. He did. So one of the things that was there in the closed files of all of his personal and professional papers, which his family opened up to me, was a series of records 
that were stamped top secret from the FBI, from the CIA, making clear the kinds of leaks he had. And J. Edgar Hoover was brilliant at leaking to Joe McCarthy when it looked like McCarthy could help Hoover in terms of making his case about communist spies and getting extra resources for the FBI. But when Eisenhower and others who were more powerful than McCarthy started turning on McCarthy, Hoover shut off the lever and stopped the leaks. There are so many echoes that reach to the present day. Robert Taft, who is in many ways the leader of the Republican Party, didn't like what was happening, wasn't pleased with McCarthy, but also realized that it might benefit the party. He did indeed. So one of the first, in my role as a journalist years ago, um, I covered a young county commission chairman in Louisville, Kentucky, (laughs) named Mitch McConnell. Uh, And Mitch McConnell today reminds me so much of Robert Taft in terms of enabling the president when he knows better. Taft told his friends that McCarthy was reckless and couldn't be trusted and would end up bringing down the party. McConnell has been quoted as saying similar things to his confidants, and yet both of them continue to support the demagogue because it serves their narrow interest at the time. So many parallels to the present day and and Donald Trump, and you point out that like Donald Trump, Joe McCarthy understood how to use and manipulate the media to get what he wanted. He did from the very beginning. He did when he went and gave that speech that we were talking about earlier in Wheeling, West Virginia, the one where he named all the, or he held the list that he said contained the names of these spies in the State Department. And it wasn't accidental that he chose a place like Wheeling, West Virginia, to unleash that evidence. He knew that there would be only two reporters there covering his speech, one for the local paper called the Wheeling Intelligencer, and the other a local Associated Press reporter. So he knew they wouldn't know who to call at the State Department for comment for the next day's story. He also knew if he gave the speech as a dinner speech, there wouldn't be time to get comment. He knew perfectly how to manipulate the press. And he ended up with his charges every day on page one. And it was on page 24 the following day that there would be the rebuttals. And he knew that nobody would pay attention to the rebuttals. So he charmed the press when he had to. And like the current occupant of the White House, he intimidated and attacked the press when the news was bad. And much like that current occupant, uh, did he also uh, display the classic characteristics of a bully? Absolutely the classic characteristics of a bully. And it was not accidental that you and I are making this connection between McCarthy and Trump. It's not just that the actions look alike. It is that Joe McCarthy's protege, a brilliant and arrogant young lawyer from New York named Roy Cohn, 50 years later, was Donald Trump's tutor when he was entering the cutthroat world of New York real estate. Roy Cohn passed on directly all the lessons from Joe McCarthy to Donald Trump. And when Trump has been in trouble the last three and a half years, he has said repeatedly, I wish I had a Roy Cohn by my side. And I think what he's really saying, only it would be too controversial to say it, is I wish I had a Joe McCarthy by my side. Last time you were on and we talked about your wonderful book on Bobby Kennedy, uh, you talked about Kennedy's work with McCarthy, a job that was uh, really set up by a dad, Joe Kennedy. And it was it was Roy Cohn that really drove Bobby Kennedy away from McCarthy. He liked Joe, the family liked Joe, but Kennedy and Cohn never got along. 
Yes. So Bobby Kennedy defended and befriended Joe McCarthy for the rest of McCarthy's life and never had problems with McCarthy's anti-communism. He did have problems with Roy Cohn. And the irony is, had McCarthy not picked Roy Cohn to run his staff, the guy he would have picked is Bobby Kennedy. And we can only dream how Joe McCarthy might have been different if instead of Roy Cohn whispering in his ear and reinforcing every bad instinct in McCarthy, Bobby Kennedy had been there whispering different things. Well, if you got on the bad side of Joe McCarthy, he could be ruthless. And is it safe to say that Millard Tidings of Maryland was the first to learn that the hard way? Yes, it's safe to say that he pulled out his notorious battering ram, and he went after Millard Tidings. He was a powerful senator from Maryland. He had taken on Joe McCarthy, calling him a fraud and a hoax. And the next election, McCarthy recruited a know-nothing Republican to run against him, got him financing, lent him McCarthy's bag of dirty tricks. Tidings went down to defeat, and a clarion message went out to Democrats and to Republicans Take on Joe McCarthy at your own risk. And very few were willing to do that until, well, 70 years ago last month when our own Senator Margaret Chase Smith gave her Declaration of Conscience speech. And, and that was surprising in so many ways. She had not been known for, for speaking out a lot in her time in the Senate or the House. Her trademark was the red rose and showing up to cast her vote every day. What led her to take that stand? What led her was this moment of courage. Basically, as she said in her speech, McCarthy violated every sense of what was right and what was American, and it was called the Declaration of Conscience. She delivered it with six fellow moderate Republicans, and McCarthy, in classic name-calling fashion that, again, might ring a bell today, dubbed Smith and her collaborators Snow White and the Six Dwarfs. And he went after her the next time she was up for election. She won easily, but not by as big a margin as she had before. And I think the message to the the enablers today in the U.S. Senate who support the president even when they think he's wrong, the lesson is history will judge you. Margaret Chase Smith, if she is remembered for any single thing today, it is having the courage to stand up to Joe McCarthy. Well, yes, and, and we often say around here that Susan Collins has talked throughout her career uh, of being someone who has looked up to Margaret Chase Smith, but we haven't seen a lot of Smith-like behavior in recent years from Senator Collins. So it's ironic because Senator Collins chaired the same subcommittee, the same powerful subcommittee, permanent subcommittee on investigations that Joe McCarthy did. Collins had the courage about 10 years ago to release all the transcripts of McCarthy's closed-door hearings that showed just what kind of bully she is. Collins has said repeatedly throughout her career that Margaret Chase Smith is her role model, and yet she wavers in terms of having that Smith kind of courage to take on the bully in her own party. We're talking with Larry Ty about his terrific book, Demagogue, The Life and Long Shadow of Senator Joe McCarthy. One of the things that I learned from the book is that it was not just Edward R. Murrow and the people at CBS that were going after McCarthy. There were others in the media pursuing that story. So that's absolutely true. History always gives us a simple version of things. And in a very good and well-known movie called Good Night and Good Luck, Edward R. Murrow was proclaimed the McCarthy slayer. And he, in fact, 
had some incredibly hard-hitting broadcasts on McCarthy, but they were very late in the game. And Morrow himself admitted that he was late to come around and had the courage to take on Joe McCarthy. It was much less well-known people, and especially America's most famous and well-read columnist of that era, a guy named Drew Pearson, who took on McCarthy early, who for his efforts in attacking McCarthy, he was pummeled by McCarthy mm. when they ran into one another at the cloakroom of a supper club, and he might have been really beaten badly if a peacemaker, a Quaker peacemaker that we came to know later, Richard Nixon, hadn't stepped in between the two. And more damaging even to Pearson, McCarthy went after his sponsor and right. convinced the sponsor to drop the sponsorship of, of Pearson's radio broadcast. So again, like he did with Millard Tidings in the political realm, McCarthy was telling the press, you take me on and you will pay. He had taken on the military before when he went after George Marshall, but uh, the Army McCarthy hearings proved to be his undoing. Was, was that a bridge too far, particularly uh, with Dwight Eisenhower in the White House to attack the military? So I would call it two things. One is a bridge too far or a, an enemy too big to bully, and the other is an object lesson again for today's big bully. And the object lesson is when you take on the military the way the president has recently in his photo op across from the White House when he, he used the military in a way the military regretted having been used, that the military may be the one force in American life, the most democratic in many ways force in American life, that you take on at your own risk. And even when you think you have all the power, Joe McCarthy started 1954 at the beginning of the Army McCarthy hearings with a 50% favorability. He looked invulnerable. By the end of those hearings, just six months later, his popularity had dropped to 34%, and the gig was up. One of the important things you learned, Larry, in your research uh, was the extent of uh, McCarthy's medical issues, and, and particularly his addiction to alcohol. And you write about how it uh, it affected his personal life, it affected his professional life, that hearings held in the afternoon were often different than hearings held in the morning, and ultimately that would lead to his death. It did. So the um, one of the sets of files that were made available to me were all of his medical records from Bethesda Naval Hospital, and they documented in stunning detail his increasing consumption of alcohol to the point where he was drinking a fifth a day. And in the end, it was not what the coroner told us, which was acute hepatitis that was his cause of death. It was the effects of alcohol killing him, and it was tragic, and it was bad all along and got worse from the day the Senate censured him when he essentially became an, a down-and-out alcoholic. So what are the lessons of Joe McCarthy that we can apply 70 years later to get us out of our current situation? So I'd like to end with an upbeat note. <laughs> the lesson of Joe McCarthy is we've talked about the story of bullying and demagoguery and how sad it is that time and again, in the way that happened with the archetypal bully Joe McCarthy, we've seen bullies emerge in our politics and we've bought into them. But in the end, it's a good news story. And the good news is that given the rope, every demagogue in American history has hung themselves. And given the time, America has seen through every bully and rediscovered its better nature. 
I like that. That's a good way to look at things. It is a terrific book, Demagogue, The Life and Long Shadow of Senator Joe McCarthy. Larry, uh, thank you so much for your great work on this, and thanks again for joining us. Love being with you. Thank you very much. Larry Tide discussing his book, Demagogue, The Life and Long Shadow of Senator Joe McCarthy and those, those clear connections between the two men, Joe McCarthy and Donald Trump, thanks to Roy Cohen. A fascinating story that rings every bit as true as it did 70 years ago. Dangerous times we live in once again. Our thanks to Larry Ty, thanks to Charles Learson, thanks to you for joining us this week on Downtown the Podcast, brought to you by Cross Insurance. We'll see you next time.